this is Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to South China Sea Currents, our weekly podcast on what's happening in the South China Sea. I'm joined by our South China Sea reporter, Drake Long, to talk about what he's been writing on this week for Radio Free Asia and Banana News. How are you doing, Drake? I am tired. It's been a hectic week for a uh, number of reasons. Yeah, a myriad reasons, myriad reasons, <laughs> both in the United States and in Asia. Yes. Yes, indeed. So this week, we will be discussing some of China's less publicized construction work on its outposts in the South China Sea, not on the major bases at places like Woody Island and Fiery Cross Reef that we often talk about, where its warships and coast guard ships come and go at will, but on the sort of scraps of land in the Paracel Islands that rarely attract much scrutiny. But first, we turn to the latest developments since the Philippines announced last month it was ending a moratorium that it said in 2014 on exploration for oil and gas in its waters in the South China Sea. Now, it's quite a complex topic. So, Drake, can you sort of set the scene and explain what's been happening? Sure. So a couple of weeks ago, President Rodrigo Duterte of the Philippines and his energy secretary announced that the moratorium that had been put in place since 2014 on oil exploration, energy exploration in the Philippine claimed areas of the South China Sea uh, was lifted, which means that companies can go forward and work in there. This was under the assumption that there was going to be a joint venture between the Philippine National Oil Corporation and the Chinese National Oil Corporation uh, in those waters. So essentially, they're lifting the moratorium, but they were cutting a deal with the Chinese National Oil Corporation to sort of uh, make it happen. There were some interesting wrinkles about that when it came out. For one, China famously rammed Filipino ships trying to explore for oil around the Reed Bank area back in 2011. So for them to essentially give a, a tacit green light to oil exploration is quite significant. Two, this week... On Wednesday, President Duterte told Philippine companies to go ahead without a Chinese partner in the South China Sea. So, you know, kind of contradicting what we assumed was happening when the moratorium was lifted by telling Philippine companies, you know, go ahead. If you don't have a Chinese partner, doesn't matter. If you want to risk it, go ahead right now. So it's it's very interesting uh, the way that, that things have sort of changed since the moratorium was lifted. Okay, so to unpack this a little bit, maybe we can sort of backtrack a little bit and find out how this initial lifting of the moratorium happened and the agreement between the Philippines and China allowed this to happen. I think you've been speaking to some experts on this. Yes, actually. So I spoke with uh, Professor Renato Cruz de Castro at De La Salle University in Manila in the Philippines about the moratorium when it first got lifted. And he made the point that if you look at the deal that China and the Philippines seem to be working out on oil exploration, it's actually not exactly what China demanded back in 2011 and back in 2014. It's not nearly as exclusive as we thought it was going to be. They're saying that uh, the Philippines can go ahead with exploration in waters that the Philippines claims, but also China claims, and they don't necessarily need to involve Chinese companies every step of the way which is a huge concession on China's part. We could actually hear from Renato directly on that. China has basically extended the concession. So the uh, contract will be uh, under Philippine law, under Philippine constitution. So that will be a sort of de facto recognition of Philippine territorial rights under Rebank. But right. the Chinese, of course, will be doing the, uh, the harnessing of those resources. And I, I, I don't know what will be uh, the uh, contract that will eventually come out. 
that's one of the rumors. I mean, it would make sense, but that would be quite the change from what we've seen from China since like 2011. I mean, um, when they basically didn't want any oil exploration in the area whatsoever. Why would China suddenly make a concession like that now? Because of U.S. pressure, because ah. of the strategic competition. So, of course, this is part of China's game plan to basically impress upon the smaller Southeast Asian countries. We could resolve this without mm -hmm. any external actor. So probably China is creating the, uh, what, what's the term for this, uh, the base or, uh, for a code of conduct. So, you know, we yeah. can have a deal. We could have a joint exploration without any external party involved. So this is part of a Chinese gambit to really exclude Japan and the United States and Australia and members of the Quad from the, uh, from the, uh, from the dispute. Because this is what China has always been saying. Mm -hmm. You know, let's exclude external power. Uh, this is an issue between us, claimant states, and we can resolve it by ourselves. So at this point, because of the uh, US-China strategic competition, then of course you have the permission of the Quad, China is extending concession. So he's saying that China's made a concession. It's got strategic reasons for doing that. So what do you make of what happened this week then? So what I'm thinking is happening is, as we're seeing, China is loosening up a little bit on oil exploration, specifically with the Philippines. And as Renato says, this is probably tied to its uh, diplomacy around the code of conduct. They're saying that, you know, we're amenable. We can cut deals with the Philippines on oil exploration that actually, you know, doesn't involve the Chinese National Oil Corporation in every step of the energy exploration process. And then China will go to other countries in ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, that it also has territorial conflicts with, like Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, what have you, and simply say, if I could deal with the Philippines, you can see that I'm reasonable. Uh, we can work this out just between the two of us, you know. Don't go to any external countries. Let's not make this a ASEAN block issue. Let's do this bilaterally. Let's maybe just discuss this. I could kind of deal with you like how I did with the Philippines. So it's quite a savvy move on China's part. It's a concession. And I think we're seeing this concession in motion this week as Philippine companies are now allowed to go ahead and drill basically on their own. And, and the thought is that China's doing this because it wants to grease the wheels for the code of conduct negotiations on setting the rules under which um, ships would conduct themselves in disputed waters. Yes. So one of China's sticking points in those negotiations is they want to make it a part of the code that you cannot have any international oil companies enter into the waters and you can't internationalize the South China Sea dispute. That's kind of a huge ask. But if China goes into those negotiations and says, we are capable of just dealing this you and me, ASEAN and China, you know, we can just work it out between the two of us. We don't need any outside countries to come in here and explore for oil or give their own input. We don't need to internationalize this. That's actually a huge win for China. So I think it's trying to demonstrate that it's maybe reasonable. I mean, it, more reasonable than its previous position. And it's hoping that that sways a lot of the code of conduct negotiators over to its side. So if the Philippines this week is saying that its own companies can get going and, and start doing oil exploration without the participation of China. I mean, is this really going to happen? Is this bluster on the, on the Philippines part? Or, or do you think that could really, really happen? 
it's tough to say. I mean, we just don't know at this point if any company is actually going to, you know, take them up on this offer. If I was a, if I was an oil company, I probably would not, to be honest with you. It's quite risky. But one thing that's important to note is that there's a fine line between exploration and like drilling commercially, you know, to produce. So maybe companies that are not Chinese, Philippine companies, international companies, whatever, can start exploring for oil. But as soon as they find a good reserve and they have a good estimate of it, China will step in and say, all right, now's the time that you work with Sinook. Now's the time you work with a China national offshore oil company. So, you know, if this is a concession, maybe it really only applies to the first stages of uh, oil production. And then we'll see a more overt Chinese hand as the uh, production moves forward. Right. And as the economic stakes grow higher. You're listening to South China Sea Currents. Now we turn to Chinese construction in the Paracel Island chain. Drummond Island, Tree Island, West Sand are not names that mean much to many of us, but they do to Drake. China is investing in the development of these scraps of land in disputed waters. So, Drake, you've been doing a bit of a deep dive on some of these small features. Why did you decide to do that? What's the interest? So we report a lot at Radio Free Asia on the biggest islands that China has in the South China Sea, the big artificial islands, the military bases, like, as you mentioned, Woody Island. Woody Island in the Paracels is China's most developed settlement in the South China Sea. Um, It is the most significant area in terms of reclaimed land. It hosts military assets. It has a fully functioning city on top of it. It's very big and flashy. But... Woody Island is one of about 17, 18 different features that China occupies the Paracels. So I thought it would be important to sort of look at these smaller outposts that China has and simply see, you know, what's going on over there? Like, what are they doing there? What are the goals with the construction on these little islets? And when I say little, I mean very tiny. A lot of these islands are about a tenth of a square mile in terms of raw land. None of them are over one square mile in size. Woody Island is about two square miles. So we're talking pretty tiny. Woody Island was not huge. And these islets are even smaller than that. And we have no figures on who lives there. But on certain islands like Tree Island, on certain islands like uh, Drummond Island, you're talking probably not more than 100 people tops. And they're probably mostly soldiers. Right. So let's look at maybe one or two of these places that you, you looked in depth at. So what did you find? So I wanted to highlight two islands, three islands, basically. Uh, The first one, Drummond Island. Drummond Island is in the south of the Parasol Islands. It's near Duncan Island, which has like a helicopter port. We occasionally see Chinese warships, very tiny ones, go in there. But Drummond Island is even less developed than that. So I wanted to monitor it to see if there's any construction going on. And sure enough, China is clearing a lot of land near its harbor uh, to make room for something. From my guess, it looks like it could be a helipad, which makes a lot of sense given how hard it is just to access that little island. But the foundation is being laid for much more housing. Could be military housing, could be civilian housing. There is a local Communist Party working committee based on that island. And, you know, it has no fresh food, it has no fresh water, it has no energy supply, really. So I think what China's trying to do is make that little islet more livable. And then on top of that, with the access bit, as I point out in the article, Drummond Island is in the middle of a shallow shoal. Most boats can't reach it too easily. There's a very thin a string-like canal that leads to its very tiny harbor. And I think China is trying to build a helipad or something just so that they can access it by air, which makes a lot of sense given the other construction that they've done around the area. 
Before you talk about, you know, some of the other features you, you looked at, your thoughts on why China would want to develop small features like this. I mean, you're, you're saying that they occupy 17, 18 islands in, or, or rocks or, or sandbars in the Paracels. I mean, what's the point? What, what do they get out of occupying these little scraps of land? So, I mean, that's kind of the, the big question. But actually, you know, after looking at them for so long, I realized they're actually quite useful. I mean, I said before, you know, they're they're very tiny. They're not even a square mile in size. Their harbors are maybe less than a tenth of a square mile, and they're very shallow. We're accustomed to seeing pretty large Chinese warships at Woody Island, and those things just can't fit at Drummond Island. But what I have seen are just smaller military assets that I hadn't even thought about before uh, at those stations. You know, some rudimentary radars. At Duncan Island, we spotted missile boats, which are basically the tiniest warships that China has. So these little islets do actually have quite a bit of military value, even if it's just something as simple as having a garrison there to kind of monitor the waters or a lighthouse. If you're China and you want to create a network of bases for your Marines, for your Coast Guard, and for your Navy, every little bit of land in the South China Sea is useful. And I think that a lot of the construction that I've been witnessing is the effort to make those things the most useful they could possibly be for the military. While at the same time, they have to be livable, they have to be sustainable. There has to be fruit, there has to be water, there has to be a way to resupply them. Right. Now, on that point, it's not just about bricks and mortar that you were finding interesting things. It was about cultivating and uh, greening these areas in, on these tiny islands. Yes. Yeah, so but the other feature I was looking at was West Sand. So West Sand was interesting because after looking at imagery of it for about, you know, four or five months in the archives, I noticed something was off, but I couldn't quite tell what it was. And then after looking at it and looking at the contrast, I realized it was getting greener. There are these dark spots that were growing on it. Then you zoom in a little bit more and there are trees and they're not naturally growing trees either. They're set up in these very specific grid-like patterns all across the area. West Sand is literally just a spit of sand in the middle of the ocean. There is nothing there. There's a tiny desalination pump, but that is literally it. But these trees that are getting planted there are special kinds of palm trees that we see in other islands that are naturally growing that are meant to prevent soil erosion. So, you know, waves hit the shore. Uh, it grinds away the sand. It washes them back out to sea. If there's a typhoon, islands sometimes just get totally torn apart. But these plants, these trees, are meant to head that off. And I found a research article that actually shows that a lot of China's researchers are interested in this. They, they know that they need these soil erosion preventing trees on each of these little islets to kind of prevent them from just washing out into the ocean. And they're experimenting with a couple different breeds. I think it's very interesting. And I think, like you said, it's very non-traditional. It's not what we think about when we terms of construction in terms of like building up these islands, but cultivation itself is making these islands more durable, more sturdy. West Sand in the future, because it has these roots now, could host uh, more explicit buildings or concrete or pavement or what have you. So it's, it's a very interesting, kind of obscure thing uh, to highlight, but I, I thought it would be interesting to readers. I mean, I guess it also speaks to the long-term vision of China in how it develops these outposts across the South China Sea. Yes, absolutely. If they're planting trees to prevent soil erosion, that means that they're very concerned about keeping these tiny, tiny sandbars alive for as long as possible. 
um, well beyond their actual like use at this point, which means they want to make them more useful later on. If they're publishing articles about these soil erosion trees, you know, talking about how they're concerned about pests tearing them down, or they're experimenting with sand to soil methods on some islands, like how we reported on a while back, that means that they're really invested in protecting this vegetation and in protecting what little gains they have made on some of the most uninhabitable islets out in the South China Sea, out in the Paracels. And on top of that, I think it ties in pretty clearly to China's overall argument for the South China Sea, because China wants to insist that these sandbars and these rocks are islands. Under international law, to be an island, they have to be sustainable. They have to have fruits and vegetables. They have to have uh, basically ways that people can live there. They have to be habitable. And by planting these trees, China is setting up a very long process of getting them to that point. And then just saying like, well, I mean, now we have vegetation, uh, they're sustainable, people can live here. You have to call us an island. We have to have economic rights to all the waters around it now under international law. So it's, it's a very, very long game. And when I say very, very long, you know, West Sand has been growing these trees for six months, but I, don't, I can't see anything getting built on there for another year or two at most. So they're clearly thinking very far ahead. Right. Thinking about settlement for the long term. You're listening to South China Sea Currents. And before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you, Drake, about something else, a development on the sort of legal front. There is a new draft law, I understand, that would allow the Coast Guard to use weapons if it confronts foreign ships. Is that right? That is correct. So the uh, National People's Congress uh, Standing Committee just released a draft law that would arm the Coast Guard. And I mean, that might sound a little bit ridiculous to some listeners. I mean, the, the China Coast Guard is a military force. Technically, it is a part of China's armed forces. Uh, we've seen it, you know, ram ships. We've seen it shoot water cannons at people. And you can see, you know, guns on their decks. And you kind of assume they're already armed. But actually, no, they never actually technically had the authority to fire guns at ships if things got really rough. And this law explicitly gives them permission to do that. It's very fascinating. It, it kind of shows uh, the evolution of the Coast Guard from a purely civilian agency like the U.S. Coast Guard into the military branch that it technically is, like the Navy. Um, so it was, it was an interesting th thing to kind of highlight. I thought it was important to bring it up because the conditions under which the China Coast Guard will use its weapons are as simple as obstructing the China Coast Guard. So, I mean, any foreign ship that's getting in the way of the China Coast Guard could suddenly start getting shot at, which would be an insane escalation because we have not yet seen that in the South China Sea. Right. And the idea is that this law would give authorization for the China Coast Guard to, to do this stuff in areas that are under China's jurisdiction, which means, what does that translate as? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I asked uh, Hunter Steer, as a fellow at the U.S. Naval War College about this, and he made it very plain, you know, jurisdictional waters, that's the phrase in the law, uh, jurisdictional waters, waters under China's jurisdiction is actually a very vague term. It's purposefully kind of hazy, purposefully kind of gray. We don't actually know what China means by that, and they don't really spell it out. They have definitely claimed sovereignty over the South China Sea through various means like the Nine Dash Line. And they have tried to exercise jurisdiction in the South China Sea through things like uh, drug busts off of Fiery Crest Reef, you know, with their law enforcement agency. So it seems to me that China believes the South China Sea are jurisdictional waters, but it does not want to explicitly say that, likely because of the implications of trying to sort of claim jurisdiction 
over millions and millions of square miles of open ocean, which would be kind of ridiculous. I mean, as we talked about earlier, China is trying to play nice with code of conduct countries, asserting jurisdiction over the entirety of the South China Sea explicitly kind of throw a ratchet into that. But that seems to be what they're doing with this law. Right. It seems like they're setting up a legal framework for wide ranging actions in the future. Yes, definitely. So um, that's all for this week. If you've got any questions or feedback, please email us on South China Sea. That's all one word at rfa.org. Please check out Drake's previous articles about the South China Sea at rfa.org and bananews.org. You can also catch up there on our previous podcasts, or you can look on Spotify and iTunes. Just search for South China Sea Currents. Or follow Drake on Twitter. His handle is drm underscore long. I'm Matt Pennington with Drake Long, the South China Sea reporter for Radio Free Asia and Banana News. This podcast series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. Thank you for listening, and please join us again 